Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Ari Barbalat. I am honored today to be in dialogue with Dr. Sterling Mosley. He is an assistant professor in the Department of Human Relations at the University of Oklahoma. We are here today to discuss his new book, The Narcissist in You and in Everyone Else, Recognizing the 27 Types of Narcissism published in New York by Roman and Littlefield, 2023. Sterling, it's an honor to be in dialogue with you today. Yes, you too. It's good to talk to you, Ari. To begin, please tell us about yourself. Where did you grow up? What formative events in your life inspired the academic journey you would embark on? Yeah, so I, I grew up in here in uh, live in Norman, Oklahoma, and I grew up in Norman, Oklahoma. So most of my... Um, educational years, uh, all of them were, were here in Oklahoma. And so, uh, you know, being a, uh, you know, minority and somewhere like Oklahoma, you know, allowed me to, um, you know, I have a sort of a, I think I formed a different perspective of a lot of things, um, socially and culturally, which is kind of what led me to, um, I've always been a lifelong learner. And, uh, I remember when I was, six years old, my mother told me that I came home crying because I was tired of school. And she said, well, you better get used to it. You've got a lot of school left. Um, and of course that made me cry more, but she was right. Um, and, and then I ended up loving school. So I, um, I got my, uh, bachelor's degree in English writing, um, focused on creative writing and, uh, poetry actually. And then, um, that was after being a music major for two years, I played the flute. Um, and then uh, did philosophy, did that for a year and knew that was not, uh, it was it was fine, but <laughs> I didn't think I wanted to do more of that. So I graduated with a bachelor's in English and then I went on to get my master's degree in counseling um, and uh, studied personality, uh, specifically delving into the Enneagram typology, which I talk about in the group, uh, and then got my PhD in communication and uh, 
uh, intercultural communication to be specific. So my dissertation was about uh, decolonizing communication methodologies and theory. So, so yeah, I, I, I love, um, you know, learning. I research everything from communication to mysticism to all, all kinds of things. So um, it's a little bit of my sort of educational background. What inspired you to write this book? What message do you hope to convey to readers? Well, this book is um, partially personal for me um, and then also just in my academic interests. So I, um, you know, I have had relationships with people who um, are narcissistic, uh, uh, close family relationships, um, and then also some mentors throughout my life that have demonstrated some of these patterns and um but even prior to kind of realizing that it actually wasn't until the last five or six years that I really realized the extent of the my personal contact with some of these um types that I talk about in the book but it it was more that um I've always been interested in personality and um because I like to know what makes people tick. I like to know what motivates people and what makes them do what they do. And um, I think it was a way to help me navigate human relationships um, and to understand people better. And so, and and then I also had a sort of natural, I guess, aptitude, you could say, um, that I figured out in my uh, uh, graduate program, my master's program, uh, for diagnosis and understanding personality disorders and and things like that. So it, this book was kind of a natural uh, sort of synthesis of all of the things that I'm interested in um, and I guess have an aptitude towards and 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 then it, it having personal relevance to me kind of was the the cherry on top. So that was kind of my inspiration for writing the book. What are the primary themes in your book? What quote unquote story does your book tell? Um, very good question. So I think the themes of the book are pretty simple. Um, first, I I want to give readers a sort of uh, understanding of what empathy is, um, and um, and then what happens when empathy is absent in a person. So so I would say empathy and the lack of empathy, um, which often. Uh, correlates to narcissism. Uh, those are two of the major themes of the book. And then of course, the other system that I use in the book is uh, the Enneagram personality system, which is, you know, just a, a system of nine personality types at its basic core. Um, and then, and then really, I think my, you know, the, the sort of working theme that I want to develop in later work is also just how to develop more compassion for ourselves and other people, including narcissistic people. Um, now that doesn't mean we have to be in relationship with them or put up with abuse, but sort of understanding why someone is doing something has been a theme of my work, um, my teaching work and uh, all the other work that I've done is just like, if you, I feel like if you understand people, uh, and why they're doing what they're doing, then it really, um, I don't know, it, it, it makes things less personal and can sometimes take the sting out of things a little bit. So so the themes of empathy, narcissism, and uh, just compassion, self-understanding, and understanding others. What would you like listeners to get out of our interview? What would you like them to learn from our dialogue? Well, I want them to learn uh, that, I think the, the book title, <laughs> someone 
that I spoke to said it's a little intimidating because it's you know the narcissist in you uh, and so it sort of jumps out at you and I and they they admitted to having a little bit of trepidation for picking up the book and reading it which <laughs> which I think is is a fun um, way to think about it but I, I want people to realize that this isn't this book isn't I- intended to make anybody wrong or bad but it's to help uh, help shed some light on and give insight to these types of people that people experience all the time uh, and 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 understand it better so that we can stop making ourselves feel a little uh, crazy, uh, gaslighting ourselves and then, well, maybe I'm not really, you know, noticing this thing or, you know, maybe they're just a difficult person. So I hope through our conversation and me kind of... Um, talking about what's what's in the book and and my intentions of the book it will draw more people in to sort of facilitate a kind of I think healing and uh, understanding for people what is your book's contribution to attachment theory Ooh, um that's a good question so I don't I don't specifically deal a lot with attachment theory in the book however um I do think narcissism is uh very often a, uh, a a condition or a set of traits that implies uh, a, a sort of disorder of attachment um, and, or a, at least a uh, some problems with attachment in that narcissists have difficulty forming attachments with people um, that are humanizing. And so in order for someone to be able to make attachments that are based on uh, mutual respect and, uh, you know, compassion, empathy. Uh, it, it, it's difficult for narcissists to do that because the, this, the way in which they engage in object relations, which is, uh, you know, what attachment theory is discussing, the way they engage in those object relations from the outset makes the other person uh they tend to objectify more than the quote unquote average person right so people become means into an end uh and so i'm hoping that if if it if there is any contribution to to attachment theory is that we can understand that narcissism in and of itself um or even just you know a low empathy uh to some extent can can really kind of severely affect the way someone attaches or doesn't attach to someone else. Now, of course, you know, it's a whole other discussion getting into, you know, how attachment forms and those sorts of things. But there, there's plenty of research around this idea with narcissism and um, and their, their sort of skewed object relations in terms of how they view people and relationships. Can you describe for us the story of Narcissus from Greek mythology? How does this narrative convey lessons about narcissism that are relevant for today? How does the Greek story of Narcissus complement and or challenge prevalent conceptions and misconceptions about narcissism that are widespread in our society? Yes. Um, So yes, Narcissus... um, in the Greek uh, mythology was he was a, a beautiful, uh, you know, virile young man who um, had the attention of many 
of uh, the women in his city. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, Greek, Greek stories are often sort of have these elements of uh, mystical and tragic, especially ancient Greek stories, uh, uh, mysticism and tragedy and things like that. And so he, he felt like no one in the village um, in the city that he lived in was worthy of him. Right. And so he would often go and spend uh, great amounts of time gazing at himself in this pond um, because really no one was as wonderful as, as he was. And, um, and he was enamored with his own image. So, so really the original sort of story was really just someone who was transfixed with their own image. Um, and, and so Narcissus, uh, be, becoming more enamored with the image of himself, uh, the reflections of himself in this pond, um, began to isolate himself and spent more and more time just gazing at his own, at his own beauty. And until one day, you know, he, he would get closer and closer to this image. Uh, there, of course, there's different tellings of this myth, but uh, he would get closer and closer to this image. And then eventually he fell in the water and drowned um, because he just could not get close enough to himself, uh, uh, you know, an, enough for his own uh, sort of satiation. Uh, and so he, he finally, he, you know, he drowned and, and the gods, um, in order to serve as both a warning and a sort of commemoration of Narcissus, uh, sprouted uh, a flower in the water where he was, or near where he was, and and this was called it's called the Narcissus, um, which is still what the flower is named today. So, you know, the moral of the story is uh, is the the dangers of becoming so transfixed with one's own image that one um where the world disappears around them and one fails to engage in relationships um with the world because they're so enamored with themselves and i think that uh more now than ever i think with the advent of technology and um you know, especially social media and selfies and Instagram and all of these things, um, we are, we've all become sort of enamored with our own images. And, uh, and so I think narcissism as a general kind of idea has grown um, as a cultural kind of condition. Uh, there are some, there's some kind of upsetting uh, data that, that says that, you know, narcissistic traits have grown uh, about 20% and, and young people under the age of uh, 35. And, and, and it's, it's because of, we think, because of this sort of obsession with, you know, not only ourselves, but getting validation for what we do. Uh, and so this, this sort of myth of narcissus is sort of uh, back staring at us, you know, kind of asking us to sort of grapple with, you know, what happens to, you know, if, if Narcissus is culture as a whole, what happens to culture as we become more and more enamored with um, ourselves and this sort of individualistic focus that Western societies often have, um, you know, doesn't mean that we will eventually drown ourselves. I hope not um, if we wake up, but so that that's the, the relevance to me of that particular myth. What can you tell us about the story of Cinderella and Prince Charming, what lessons about empathy and narcissism 
come up in that story. Can you share your interpretation of the story as it comes up in your book? Yeah, so I, I talk about Cinderella in my uh, chapter on uh, type two, which is the sort of helpful supporter personality style, um, aside from the narcissism, um, and particularly the self-preservation too. Um, and 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 I I bring it up because it and it is a great illustration of um, of the role. You know, Cinderella is sort of you know this sort of uh, basically a slave uh, to her stepmother and wicked stepsisters who um, are jealous of her. Um, and basically in order to prevent her from being uh, sort of seen by others and, and respected, they make her a maid um, uh, and she toils and works and she's a very kind uh, woman. And she, you know, she befriends these animals in the house, mice and uh, whatnot and and cares for them and and sort of selflessly cares for her stepmother and stepsisters who are cruel and sadistic um, and often just enjoy watching her scrub and toil. Um, and of course the you know the, the morality sort of play at work in this story is you know that uh, they are eventually that the stepsisters and and stepmother are are punished for their kind of, mistreatment of Cinderella and she's finally seen for the beautiful um kind woman that she is and is rescued by um a prince and uh and she gets to go to the ball and of course then she has to return to um her her humble sort of slave-like existence um after she goes to the ball and and the fairy godmother um, is the one who bestows upon her this gift of being able to step outside of her role as as, as a maid for a period of time. Um, so I do think there there are themes of empathy working here, um, but I I use it to illustrate a one of the personality types, which is the the self preservation too, um, because the fairy godmother and Cinderella and the stepsisters are all sort of different variations of this personality type. Um, but I also think it's an important metaphor because oftentimes in real life narcissistic dynamics, um, I have a I had a a client that I worked with who whose mother was a narcissistic uh, too, uh, just like in the chapter, very much like the wicked stepmother, and would wake her up in the middle of the night to clean and you know do things that were sort of unreasonable. And of course, nothing was ever right. And the unfortunate part of that whole, um, her whole life experience as a child uh, was that there wasn't a, you know, fairy godmother or Prince Charming that came and was able to whisk her away, right? So she had to live with and, and try to understand why her mother was just never pleased with anything that she did and why she seemed to be punitive to her for just existing. And um and so I think, uh, and until she had the language of, you know, that her mother was likely a narcissist and um, she was jealous of her for nothing that she did, but for her perceived talents that the mother didn't have, it, it sort of helped her make more sense of her experience. And so I put that that analogy in the book uh, to, to help illustrate the sort of archetype of this the way that this kind of narcissism can function uh, in in the 
in both in myth, but also in the real world. In your perspective, how can narcissism be mitigated, cured, or reduced in those who struggle with this problem? Well, I think awareness is really important. Um, and, and that's really the primary hurdle that people that are narcissistic have to overcome is, A, there's a tendency for people who struggle with narcissism or I guess they don't struggle with narcissism. We struggle with their narcissism. They're usually fine. Um, and and therein lies the problem, problem right? Is that um, they are not aware of their narcissism. Uh, it's usually everyone else that has the problem. Um, and so getting someone who is narcissistic to overcome the immense pride that can come along with that ego structure uh is 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 challenging um i i remembered a a a research participant who shared with me that you know they she knew her husband was narcissistic and they went to a therapist and uh her this is this tale happens all over the world um and they went to the therapist and uh the therapist shared with the the husband that they thought he was a narcissist and that they've observed him for a while and he exhibits all the traits. And, and the first thing they did was fire the therapist because the husband wanted nothing to do with it. Right. So um, the inability to let in the awareness um, is one problem. Uh, and then even still, even I, I, I did interview people that obviously knew they were narcissistic and that they it didn't, uh, it wasn't a problem for them. And it's everyone else's problem. And and some even went as far as to um, say that other people just needed to be more like them. And so uh, I think the, the first step is them being able to recognize the effect of their narcissism um, on people around them. And that's usually the only thing that can get them to start. Um, it's not necessarily something that can be cured, um, but I do think that that the behaviors of the narcissist can be mitigated by um, learning strategies for how to think about someone else's feelings, um, to put yourself in the other person's shoes, to temporarily um, uh, sort of put off one's immediate gratification uh, for the sake of someone else. And depending on the narcissistic you know, the type of narcissist you're dealing with, it's, it's harder for some um, than others. But, but I think that that's, that's as good as it probably is going to get is just the person having the awareness and being able to employ strategies to not have as many interpersonal or professional disruptions, because they don't want that either. They really want to be efficient um, and getting what they want. And so the more strife there is, uh, for many of them, the more impetus there is for them to maybe implement some strategies to change. How does Sigmund Freud understand narcissism? What does he mean by secondary narcissism? How do you interpret or reinterpret Freud's concept of secondary narcissism? What are the core themes and perspectives in his work on narcissism that inform your study? Yeah, so I think... Um... Freud, you know, the the idea of narcissism existed before Freud. I think he really was the one to kind of uh, develop out uh, what narcissism is more clinically. Um, and, And I agree. So primary narcissism is, and I talk about this in the book as well, 
primary narcissism is the state in which we all, you know, and most of us, unless you are born sort of this uh, realized, fully realized human being, which most people are not, um, mar primary narcissism is the state of just being aware that you have a self. Uh, you know, I am me and uh, at times I have to make decisions that are purely based on my own needs and well-being. Um, and this is what allows me to survive in the world, right? The ego is a defense strategy um, or def set of defense strategies. Um, and and its job as, as an entity, if you will, is to keep us alive in the best way that the ego sees fit. And so at times... Um, with primary narcissism, you know, we have to do things that, you know, I, you know, we hear people say, well, I just needed to do that for me. Um, that's primary narcissism. And most of the time, those things do not transgress on or uh, damage other people. And so primary narcissism is sort of a, a, according to Freud, is sort of a necessity of being a human being living in the world. Um, unless you are, you know, like I said, a spiritually realized person, and then even then, um, you still have an ego. I think you just maybe aren't as identified with it. But um, secondary narcissism, as Freud describes it, is is this idea of not only are we trying to get what we need and want, um, which is what all of us do, and, and maybe not always in the best way, but if we have some measure of empathy, uh, we try not to transgress other people while getting our needs and wants. Secondary narcissism uh, sort of eliminates the the transgression part. There, there's less awareness of uh, that other people are also trying to get what they need and want because other people aren't quite as important as what we would need and want if we progress to secondary narcissism. So secondary narcissism would be the more clinical uh, presentation of narcissism if we were to take it from that perspective. It is an, a sort of overvaluation of one's self-importance, of their talents, of their worth, um, the belief that what, what I want as a Freud secondary narcissist, what I want is more important than what you want. And um, who I am is more important than who you are. And therefore I deserve special treatment. So along with that comes entitlement, comes um, uh, uh, that grandiosity that I was just talking about, that sense of um, being better than, than other people. And secondary narcissism is a problem because it, it, it precludes uh, a lot of behaviors that are transgressive, that could be damaging to other people. And so my, my book is talking about secondary narcissism. It's talking about Freud's concept of when narcissism, primary narcissism uh, overtakes, uh, is overtaken by, by secondary narcissism and becomes pathological. What are the different levels of empathy? What are the differences between levels one, two, three, four, five, six, and seven? Oh, good question. Um, so uh, I'm trying to think of how to do this in a, in a way that is succinct. So, so there are different, there are varying levels of empathy. Um, and this idea was actually first um, sort of developed out by Simon Baron Cohen, who did a lot of research, um, especially with uh, people who, uh, on the autism spectrum 
and and he was really curious about you know what is it that um well two things what is uh what creates quote unquote evil in the world and of course he was looking at you know being devoid of uh narcissism um and and then two what there's obviously people with varying uh, degrees of narcissism. So he developed a, what he called the empathy quotient, which um, I used and then expanded upon for my research and one phase of my research. And so I was able to sort of, um, he talks about six degrees of empathy. I actually think there are seven. Um, and and so there, there's all the way from zero degrees of narcissism where the person does not experience any kind of um, empathetic resonance uh, with other people. They they do not, and not only do they not experience it, they don't care about it. And that's a really important distinction. People that have um, zero degrees of, of empathy um, almost always have some degree of narcissism present as well. Um, now that is not necessarily true of people who are um, on the autism spectrum and it, you know, Simon Baron-Cohen discusses this, but this idea that people with um, autism don't experience empathy, I, I don't think is true. And I don't think he does either. Um, I haven't read some of his latest work on this, but um, I, I think they experience empathy uh, through different channels. Um, perhaps they empathize more with animals or um, other things, and but they often want to learn um, how to not offend people, how to not hurt people's feelings. They don't want to be doing those things. And so, um, especially people with high functioning autism, uh, can learn cognitive empathy. And so I'm not necessarily talking about, uh, neurodivergent people in terms of experience, not experiencing empathy. I'm talking about someone who is not otherwise neurodivergent, who just doesn't have it. They don't feel what other people feel. They don't care to, they often keep to themselves at level zero. Um, they just don't, uh, I, I have a, a someone who was in my study who he talked about pushing a kid off of a slide or his brother off of a slide and this brother broke his arm and um, and the, the, his parents were like, why did you do that? And he was like, I thought it was funny. And, and there was no, um, he didn't care that his brother, still to this day when I interviewed, did not care that his brother broke his arm. He still thought it was funny. He did wow. not understand and why someone would be you know why it would matter um and and so that is that's zero degrees of empathy right there um and and as we progress through these levels at level one um there may be more awareness i think that the person doesn't have a lot of empathy they often will keep to themselves but they will be better able to mask um that they don't have it, they may learn how to have um, some basic kind of sympathetic responses, like saying, I'm sorry for something or something like that, just so that they don't have to deal with the inefficiency of people getting mad at them all the time. But they don't really feel it so much as it's just, um, they don't want to be bothered uh, with people shaming them for it, uh, for not having empathy. And as you progress, um, up through levels two and three, the person gains more and more awareness, like, okay, I'm missing something that other people have. Um, one of my participants uh, that had, I uh, was on level three said that they they prefer professional relationships. They were an accountant um, 
because they like dealing with numbers and data and they can get along with people. Um, but, and they did not identify on the autism spectrum. Um, they can get along with people, but they just, they do not care and don't have time for people's emotional stories, what's wrong with them. Um, so they prefer to work, you know, not closely with people, but, but as you progress, these people can have family relationships and dynamics that are meaningful and they care about people and their families. Um, they may start to develop more, uh, Cognitive empathy, meaning understanding um, on an intellectual level how someone feels, even if they don't feel it. Um, they often learn through experiential empathy, like if they've been through something, this happens up through levels four and five. Um, if they've been through something, they'll be more prone to empathizing with people about it because they have the direct experience. And then on the upper ranges of the empathy spectrum, you get um, people who don't, they don't you know, they don't recall ever being told that they needed to empathize. It was always something that was there for them. Um, they can just feel what other people are feeling and respond accordingly. Um, you know, I, at the, the highest levels, um, it's people, you know, at level seven, it's people that can empathize with uh, people that some other people might not want to empathize with, uh, child molesters, serial killers, things like that, and saying, no, I mean, you know, they did a bad thing, but I can I can empathize with them and how hard it must have been to struggle with those things. And so as we progress through these levels, um, it's just more and more kind of uh, ability to access the different kinds of empathy, including cognitive, um, which is intellectual empathy, somatic empathy, being able to feel physically um, what someone might be feeling. I, I often use the example of like, those shows like America's Funniest Home Videos or like uh, Jackass on that was on MTV and watching people break their limbs and fall off roofs and things. People with really high empathy, especially really high somatic empathy, struggle to watch stuff like that because they can feel it. Um, and then they're like, what happened to that person? Are they okay? Um, and then you have emotional empathy, which is, you know, being able to feel someone's emotions. And then something that I uh, kind of called like we might call spiritual or metaphysical empathy that seems to just come um, without any experience or knowledge of, you know, the person that seems to be more universal in nature um, and less focused on people they know. How does the DSM, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, describe narcissism? What are the strengths and weaknesses of this presentation of narcissism? Very good question. Um, so the DSM uh, describes, it, it gives criteria of narcissism, which of course I don't have in front of me, um, but they include things like uh, grandiosity, um, uh, being unable to uh, think of other people's needs, um, being highly ambitious, um, being uh, feeling like one needs to they have a sense of self-importance being preoccupied with fantasies of success and power and brilliance um needing other people to to sort of bend to their will or being inflexible in some way um and they often tend to have impairments in terms of intimacy like they have trouble making relationships and maintaining relationships they often get into conflicts with people because their needs tend to trump other people's um they often can over 
underestimate their abilities um, and underestimate other people's abilities. Um, again, they tend to have a lack of empathy. That is a big component of it, which is a part of the interpersonal functioning. Um, they don't tend to feel bad um, if they hurt someone because usually it's often justified. They can be manipulative, um, deceitful, uh, hostile. This is all according to the DSM, right? They tend to have disinhibition, meaning they can be irresponsible or impulsive and take risks that may put other people in danger or themselves in danger. But if it's something they want to do, they'll just do it. Um, so, so this is how the DSM sort of clinically defines narcissism. And the problem is for me, um, and I think other people working in this uh, space, uh, is that uh, calling it narcissistic personality disorder um, tends, you, with, with all the other diagnoses in the DSM, um, the way they're diagnosed is through assessing whether the person has impairment. Um, and and with narcissists, they don't have impairment, um, at least not in their own estimation. Now, some of them uh, will get to a point where they've maybe um, angered enough people in their lives and, uh, you know, sort of uh, burned enough bridges where they find themselves at a loss. Maybe they're getting a divorce and they are, you know, their partner is threatening not to let them see their children or whatever. And maybe then they'll go to therapy and get diagnosed and and say, okay, I want to work on some of these things. That is probably about 1% of people that have narcissism. Now, lots of people with narcissism are, are and psychopathy for that matter, are, um, uh, are often sometimes court ordered to go to therapy or things like that, but it doesn't, they, they don't think they have a problem. So having this as a criteria in the DSM uh, presents a bit of a problem because what happens is is people a believe that narcissism is this rare condition. I think you know that's something uh, the the official clinical statistics is like five percent, less than five percent of the population, uh, and that is just not <laughs> that's not true. There's there's at least I w I would say fifteen, probably upwards to twenty percent of the, at least the American population that would qualify for some degree of narcissistic traits. Um, and I think that's grown uh, for sure over the last probably 30, 40 years. Um, so, so keeping it in the DSM, um, you know, I know a lot of people that won't even use the word because it it's quote unquote clinical, right? And they don't wanna be um, accused of diagnosing someone because they're not qualified. And so I think we need to be able to distinguish um, narcissistic personality disorder, which I talk about this in the book, um, from someone who is narcissistic. Most people who are narcissistic will not qualify for, nor will they go to a therapist to get diagnosed with narcissistic personality disorder. Does that mean that they're not narcissistic? No, it just means that like most narcissists, they are not interested in going to therapy and having someone else tell them what's wrong with them. Um, and, uh, and so I, I think that, you know, I know there's some push with some, you know, um, influential people in the, in the clinical world. Um, and, you know, I am not a, a, a licensed clinician. I went to school for it, but I didn't get my license and all of that. So I don't, um, anymore. I used to work with, uh, populations and, and do this kind of work, but I don't, I don't do that. 
Um, so I'll leave that up to people that do that work. But um, as a theorist of this and a researcher just in general of the condition who has interviewed a lot of people with it, um, I don't know that most of the people I interviewed would qualify um, for the diagnosis based on what the DSM says is necessary because they, they aren't experiencing impairment. Um, their lives are pretty good, uh, <laughs> which is part of narcissism, right? And even if they aren't pretty good, um, the, like the vulnerable narcissist, for example, they blame other people. And so it's, it's, it's not, um, I don't know. I think it's a little bit misleading, uh, that the DSM, you know, when we look at the DSM criteria to say, to, to use that as our barometer, because there's a lot of it out there that wouldn't even qualify according to the DSM. What does your book teach us about sociopathy and psychopathy? How are these interrelated from narcissism? How, how are they interrelated with narcissism? How are they different from narcissism? What is the connection between sociopathy, psychopathy, and narcissism? And how does your book shed new light on such phenomena? Good question. Yeah. So so I would say that at the basic level, all three of those um, sort of labels uh, imply a being devoid of empathy or having low empathy. So that, that at a basic level, we can start there. Um, I see the the three those three things as a spectrum. Um, so narcissism being at the lower end of the spectrum, uh, which is, you know, as we've been discussing, um, it is all the things that we've talked about: the sort of grandiosity, the the tendency towards self-aggrandizement, the problems with empathy, um, and as that increases so i would say as narcissism increases and empathy decreases um and then you add to that for the sociopath or sociopathy and by the way there is no clinical diagnosis for sociopathy um it's more of a colloquial term um however I, it's used in clinical uh in the clinical world it's just not in the dsm um necessarily but there are lots of people who write about and discuss sociopathy uh Sociopathy is, is uh, according to most of the research that I came across, is, is a set of defense strategies, a way of being in the world that usually is comes up uh, as a way as a as a way to sort of navigate the world due to trauma or some sort of difficulty. Um, so if we look at it this way, someone may be narcissistic or have narcissistic traits. Maybe they grew up in a difficult neighborhood. Um, maybe they had an abusive, lived in an abusive household, um, were severely neglected, some sort of traumatic event happened or something they viewed as traumatic. It doesn't maybe have to be traumatic to the outside world, but something they viewed as traumatic. And most of the sociopaths that I uh, encountered said that there was a conscious decision at that point or at a certain point during that their life experience where they decided they were never going to let anybody take advantage of them again and they were always going to get the upper hand. So the sociopath tends to strategize a little bit more than the narcissist. They tend to be um, a little bit more, they often have more, um, at least tendency towards antisocial uh, behaviors. And by antisocial, I mean, you know, not observing laws or mores or um rules however that's not true of all of them i did interview a few who who didn't who were very 
mindful of rules and laws, they use more emotional techniques to manipulate people. But the belief for the, for the sociopath is if I do not manipulate, consciously manipulate to get what I want, I will not get what I want. Um, the narcissist, it, it happens a little bit more automatically. Often the narcissist isn't as self-aware in a weird way as the sociopath. They tend to just do what they do. And then often people who are narcissistic, if it's not too severe, you can say, you know, did you even think about me? Or did you think about what that would do? And they say, no, I didn't think about that, you know, or I don't care. Um, so it's not as consciously calculating. Um, the sociopath is, is making, they're sort of playing chess. Um, they're calculating their way through the world to get what they want and believe if they don't do that, they will not get what they want. And they think that if they don't do that, they will be taken advantage of, which is um, completely uh, unacceptable. The The psychopath, so psychopathy is, um, is a sort of, tendency towards violence and 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 it's it's a it's a sadism it's a sort of sadistic quality that comes up and it doesn't have to be physical violence it can be emotionally violent but people with high psychopathy psychopathy is like a character structure it's a way of being um anyone who has ever and this is probably most of us but if you've ever been enraged you know where you really felt like you could punch a wall or a person because you were so mad um you were in psychopathy at that moment. So rage implies that some psychopathy is present. I think of psychopathy almost like an energy, if you will. Um, and so all of us have, have experienced the energy of psychopathy. People who are quote unquote psychopaths, which is the sort of furthest end on this narcissistic, narcissistic spectrum, experience um, that sort of rage all the time. Um, and it, but because it's a state of being for them, it, it doesn't come out the way we may experience it where we get really mad and we want to hit something, right? It, it's a sort of cold calculation that can, depending on the type of psychopath and there's, you know, a whole other, that's a whole other subject in terms of the different types of psychopathy, but, you know, some are physically violent. You know, we think of our serial killers and, you know, mass murderers and things like that. That is an expression of psychopathy and some are emotionally violent. Um, where their anger at the world, um, which of course it stems from an emptiness in themselves, and that's true of narcissism too. There's there's a sort of lack of self, um, and all these other things are meant to be a replacement for self. Um, but for the psychopath, it's this anger that they have at other people um, that they believe are in some way deserving of their rage. And, and so they, they, they feel entitled to enact that rage against the world or someone else in some way. So, so we can look at these three, these three labels, narcissism, sociopathy, and psychopathy as a spectrum, psychopathy being the furthest end, um, which often includes violent uh, tendencies. Of course, there is the malignant narcissist who can have psychopathic features, but it's not necessarily like a, a way of being for them. It just comes on uh, sometimes, same with the sociopath, but the psychopath sort of lives in that state. They see themselves as a predator um, and uh, they're 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 looking for prey. They, they wanna prey on people because of this, it's an expression of this rage that they're experiencing. Earlier on, you alluded to the work of Simon Baron Cohen. Can you say more about the work of Simon Baron Cohen? What does it teach us regarding empathy and narcissism? 
how does his research on the autism spectrum and autism spectrum disorders complement your studies of narcissism? In what ways are autism and narcissism, autism and nar narcissism distinct from one another? What issues of empathy do the two quote unquote spectrums have in common? How are they similar and different? Can you elaborate on what you alluded to earlier? Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I have not read all of Simon Baron Cohen's work, um, uh, but I, uh, the, the book that uh, really influenced a lot of what I, uh, what I wrote in the book is um, the origin of, let me make sure I get it, the science of evil, excuse me. Um, and it was a great book because he was looking at um, what, what is it that creates evil in the world, right? And he, and what I loved about his work in that book, and I, that was in 2011, so I know he's expanded upon it, and um, is that he he's worked with people in uh, on the autism spectrum, um, and he is aware that many of them experience what we would consider a lack of empathy. But there's a qualitative difference in what people who are on the autism spectrum experience in terms of lack of empathy and what um, someone who is not on the spectrum experiences when they have a lack of empathy. And, and the, the difference was, is the, the intent, right? So people on the autism spectrum, um, just the, the, the empathy circuits uh, don't necessarily uh, function in the same way that, that uh, other people's do and and by that you know this is why i like the term neurodivergent right because it's not that there's necessarily anything wrong it's just they they have different uh ways of accessing empathy i'll share um a, a personal friend of mine and someone that i've worked with as a as a coach um is on the spectrum and they experience uh th they were very sort of passionate about you know i have empathy uh, but it's just harder for me to access it with people, but I, I really can access it with animals um, and even sharing that they'd sometimes had to think of them, other people as animals, um, people as animals in order to reach their empathy. And then they were able to sort of access it. So this is just a different sort of pathway to their empathetic faculties. I know there are other people on the spectrum who uh, struggle to experience uh, somatic empathy or uh, emotional empathy. Uh, but can cognitively understand why someone might uh, feel bad if it's explained to them. Um, so in the book, uh, Simon Baron Cohen talks about, you know, various uh, people he worked with who, you know, I, I believe there was an example in there of someone, you know, saying, you look weird in those shoes or something and not realizing um, that that hurt the other person's feelings. They were just being honest. So that the honesty, um, and the sort of bluntness that can sometimes come with some people on the spectrum could be viewed as them not being empathetic. But if you were to present them with um, uh, uh, evidence that, that you hurt their feelings, they may not necessarily understand it initially, um, but if you explain it to them, um, then they may say, well, that wouldn't bother me, but I can understand that hurt your feelings. And they may change their behavior. Um, someone who is narcissistic uh, doesn't necessarily not understand that it wouldn't hurt the person's feelings. They often are trying to take the person down a peg um, or they're just being callous. Um, 
And and the way we know is because the the narcissist is often has a lot of empathy towards themselves. They they're they're really protective of their feelings and their emotions, uh, but they they don't afford other people the same uh, sort of grace. And so, I think Simon Baron Cohen's work was important for me. And I, I think a lot of you know my one of my the first books I reread. I read his book a little while ago, but um, I reread it as I was preparing for this book because I really wanted to be clear about um, what research says about empathy in terms of you know neurodivergent people, uh, like people on the empathy spectrum and others. Uh, he also talks about people with bipolar in his book as having zero degrees of empathy. Um, and he also says that you can be on the spectrum, and I agree with this, you can be on the spectrum and also be narcissistic so though and that can be confusing right because both of those Uh things can can be functioning at the same time um and uh i would you know i there's there's some public figures out there that are have publicly shared that they're on the spectrum that have a lot of money and run tech companies um who are also yes are on the spectrum but are also narcissistic um and and the way you can tell is that the person will not change or adapt their behavior once they know that um once they know that they're hurting people's feelings or hurting people in some way um and whereas the average person on the spectrum even if they don't necessarily understand why it hurts someone's feelings or the value of it they don't want to be hurtful right so it, it it can get the nuances can get kind of confusing um but but i think uh cohen's work is so important because it i, I i've seen a trend um especially with uh on like tiktok with um sort of gen z influencers there was a sort of movement of sort of trying to say that people who are narcissistic were just neurodivergent um, and conflating it with autism and it's like the same thing and it that's a really dangerous dialogue that we get into um, uh-huh. because I think that it um, can create a sort of apologist sentiments towards narcissism um, and the conflation of n- narcissism with autism and other neurodivergent conditions is um, research doesn't necessarily suggest that kind of convergence there are brain differences obviously with people uh with narcissism but mostly in the empathy circuits um and then there are some like the 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 dark empath which i talk about in the book who have full cognitive empathy and understand how people feel and still use that they use that information to control manipulate or harm others and so i don't know that we can call that neurodivergence um so so anyway i i like uh, Baron Cohen's work because he, he sort of parses out those differences and then also gives us gave me the roadmap for understanding um, empathy and um, you know at least from a, a research perspective because he did all the hardcore lab research um, I was not a I was not good in quant quantitative <laughs> uh, statistics so I'm glad he did that work and I was able to sort of access it and um, and then expand upon it uh, with my with my own questionnaire and study. How can your book help clinicians, therapists, social workers, and mental health personnel working with victims of narcissism and working with individuals who struggle personally with narcissism? Very good question. I think that 
the book, um, one therapist friend of mine said that it's like, it provides a roadmap. Um, and I think if you know what kind of narcissism you're dealing with, um, you can then work with, a, you're, you're more likely to get a survivor um, in your office as a clinician than you are to get the narcissist themselves. You may get the narcissist in a couple's counseling situation. That's usually when I hear most clinicians, excuse me, most clinicians say um, that they encounter a narcissist. Uh, occasionally they will have someone in their office they know is narcissistic. Um, but I have lots of uh, people that I've mentored that are clinicians um, that come to me still and say, I just, I don't know, something's off with this person and I don't know what it is. They, they seem like they might be narcissistic, but they don't necessarily fit the, the bill the way that, you know, the DSM says. And so, um, so I think helping them figure out like, what, what kind of narcissist are they? How is it presenting itself? There's a whole, you know, and in the book, I talk about, um, you know, these nine different overarching categories of narcissistic people and um the the chapter on type two and type nine narcissists they're often missed especially the neglectful narcissists because they're not as um bombastic and grandiose and peacocking and all of those things we think about or people that are the vulnerable narcissists that you know they're the way their narcissism works is they're the worst person in the world and they're a terrible monster and you know, everybody hates them. So therefore, um, I deserve to do whatever I want and get whatever I want. And sometimes people miss that version of narcissism. So I think it can help. It, it can fast track. I think once you know what you're dealing with, um, it makes it a lot easier to navigate uh, treatment, either with someone who has encountered this type of person or someone who is this type of person, because it's you're not stabbing around in the dark for strategies. It gives you a more focused way of looking at how to uh, work with and deal with the person. Why did you use Enneagrams in your research? Can you tell us about their contribution? What do they help you to communicate and to convey? What is the value of Enneagrams in contemporary psychology? where do where do any enneagrams derive from what value do they have to other psychologists and other people in the mental health field and what value do they have in your book really good question um so because i've studied the enneagram for 22 years now um i found it in high school i'm glad that i did um it so it, it's always been a part of my sort of way of looking at typologies. I personally believe it to be a superior um, personality typology uh, because it is looking at motivations rather than behaviors. And of course, there are lots of trait-based psychologists and um, lovers of the big five out there who will disagree with me. Uh, and I believe it's only because trait-based systems have been more scientifically validated and we can find it in the... Um, we can find them in the, you know, DNA sequences in terms of conscientiousness and extroversion and things like that. But um, I trait based systems don't get us any closer to understanding what makes someone tick. Um, it just tells us what they're doing. Um, so the way I often describe it is, okay, so someone is dramatic. Um, 10 different people can be dramatic uh, for 10 different reasons, or nine different, and let's use nine since we're talking about the Enneagram. 
So why are they being dramatic? What 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 is their their dramatics or um, anger or anxiety? What are they protecting against at a deeper ego level, right? And since narcissism is in in and of itself a uh, overgrowth of the ego, we need to be able to name what the ego is and categorize it. And so the Enneagram um, is a way of classifying and categorizing the ego, which we love to do in Western culture, classify and categorize things. Um, We do it with animals, uh, but, uh, but people do not want to do it with humans. Um, because we want to think we're above that kind of classification. We're too complex. And we are complex. And when you get into the Enneagram, it it, it can become very nuanced and complex. Um, but it's a shorthand for understanding these sort of nine different ways of approaching uh, the way the ego defends itself against the world. Um, now, the origins of the Enneagram are, uh, and I talk about this in the book, it's definitely got some... Uh, there, there's a sort of mystical tradition with it. There, there's evidence of it in uh, sort of the mystery schools of the ancient Greeks and the ancient Egyptians. And we don't really know how they used it. Um, of course, there's the numerological kind of aspect in terms of the, uh, you know, the Enneagram is a symbol in and of itself, right? It's a geometric symbol, a nine-pointed symbol. Um, but there were these philosophers and um, and, and mystics and, and then later, uh, Claudio Naranjo, who was a psychiatrist uh, and a student of Oscar Chazo, who was a um, it was sort of more on the mystical side of things, he adapted the Enneagram personality model, which therefore had before that had been sort of used in um, for spiritual seekers. It, w- it was more of a somatic system, sort of nine points, uh, and you you know you would sort of approach these points as sort of different aspects of human suffering and things like that. And Naranjo, Claudio Naranjo made it more accessible to the Western audience, A, by correlating it with what he knew as a psychiatrist, as a Freudian, a post-Freudian psychologist. He was a um, student of Fritz Perls. And um, and he did a lot of work uh, to create the Enneagram of personality as we know it now, which was these nine sort of basic neurotic defense strategies that all human beings have. And he worked with hundreds of people, his own patients, um, to map out the Enneagram personality model as a system. Um, It's gone through various phases of popularity in the West. Um, Naranjo was Chilean uh, and and he really didn't want it. taught in in America only because he was afraid that Americans would begin using it in a superficial way. He wasn't wrong. Um, so you see a lot of um, you see a lot of Enneagram stuff on uh, social media and Instagram and a lot of really um, pop psychology packaged ways of using it, um, which I think have, you know, has a it spread the influence of it, but it's also made it a little bit harder um, for those of us doing serious work in the field <laughs> to get people to realize this is a serious psychological typological system. Uh, but it's very much like the Myers-Briggs, which is more widely used, but again, more of a trait-based system. So the Enneagram is a, is a motivation-based system that I think is just a good shorthand way of understanding personality types. Um, and I felt like it was important for me to talk about the personality types without the narcissism 
and then and which would lead us into talking about what it looks like when these types are narcissistic um because it just gives a more complete snapshot there are many different types of narcissists that are described in the book can we discuss them together um i'd love to hear you elaborate on some of the different classifications of narcissism that you present in the book um first of all there are many different types of of narcissists that you allude to um what is a benign or a quote-unquote nice narcissist why is this referred to as narcissist light how do such people behave and what are the risks to themselves and to others of this personality yeah so i'll work backwards um i think we can definitely talk about at least a few or a couple of these of, of the types um there's 27 so it probably we probably wouldn't be able to get through all of them sure. but i do think um so let's let's talk about the nice narcissist because i mentioned that one earlier um well i mentioned the neglectful narcissist which people also miss uh but the nice narcissist is called narcissist light narcissism light um i did uh uh, this came from Dr. Ramani Darvasula, who is probably one of the most popular narcissistic, uh, narcissistic researchers. She has a lot of YouTube. Uh, she has a lot of YouTube videos, and she's written two books now, I believe. Um, and I and I did meet with her uh, and interviewed her with and talked about some various aspects of this book. Um, but I like her use of that term, narcissist light, because this is somebody who. Uh, maybe it, they tend to have a lot of what we call would call histrionic features. They tend to be bubbly and upbeat. Uh, they tend to be pretty happy um, and and can seem easygoing. Uh, where you where they differ from people that are just like that, <laughs> um, and how where the narcissism shows up is that they don't really care about other people's uh, problems. They have less. They have no bandwidth for people's emotions um what they are feeling what they want what they what they want outside of what they may want now there can be a sort of immature quality with that with a nice narcissist and this this type of narcissist typically goes with um the type two and type nine on the enneagram um or type seven as well where they just they just want to have fun and where you see the narcissism show up is that if if it's not fun or if it's not what they want to do or they don't get what they want, they become petulant. They may become antagonistic. Um, they can be very dismissive. It can be hard to get them to take care of responsibilities that may be more serious or less fun to them. And and they basically make it other people's problem uh, when there's something they don't want to do that isn't enjoyable to them. But it can be hard to spot this one because they can be very nice. People can like hanging out with them. They can be a lot of fun. They can be the life of the party. They can be gregarious and um, even superficially generous. But when you need someone who can, um, when you need them to listen, when you need them to empathize with you, when you need them to um, do something they don't want to do, um, that's when you'll see the narcissism show up because they just don't think they should have to do that. And they think it's your problem. Um, and so nice narcissism often gets missed. I, a lot of the uh, clients that I've worked with and people that were in my study um, had encounters with nice narcissists of various types, personality types, and didn't really know what to call it. They were like, what's going on here? And they seem 
nice and everybody likes them, but you know, they just don't really seem to care about me or my feelings. It's just about what they want to do. And it's fine if we're doing what they want to do, but if, if it's not, they don't cooperate. And that's, that's a pretty good indication of narcissism. Um, as far as some of the, the subtypes we can talk about, um, I, I always like to talk about some of the ones that people don't uh, notice as much. Of course, in, in, in the book, I talk about type eight, um, which is the powerful protector personality type, and then the three different kinds of narcissistic variants. Um, I would say that that's the type that people recognize the most easily. So the most uh, obvious uh, sort of cultural example right now of someone who is the type A personality is Donald Trump. Um, and I will go ahead and say that, I mean, I, I'm not the only one that would say he's also a narcissist. Um, and um, and he's this the cynical tyrant narcissist. So it's, it's about amassing power um, and influence. And, and um, some of what people have criticized him for are just the basic aspects of his personality type without the narcissism, like almost all eights will speak in and sometimes in the way that he talks and things like that. But um, it's really easy, <coughs> excuse me, it's really easy for us to recognize that type of narcissism because it's so big, it's so grandiose, it's over the top. And that's what people think about when they think about narcissism, I think. Um, so that that type, the type eight brand of narcissism is a little bit easier for people to see. Uh, some of the, the more difficult ones, like uh, the different type nine variations of narcissism, like the neglectful slacker, for example. Um, so this is somebody who uh, seems pretty chill. They're easygoing. They don't have a problem. Um, they, they, you know, they, they sort of keep to themselves, but when you need them to do something, when you need them to, uh, uh either care about something, uh, that, that maybe would disrupt their peace or sense of well being, that's when you'll get the narcissism. They don't think they should have to worry about anything ever. Um, and they won't, they, and if, it, if there's a problem, um, an example would be like, one example I heard is uh, a husband who someone believed that this their husband was this variant and their child was very ill and he was watching a football game uh, that he really wanted to see and and eating a pizza and his, it wouldn't take this child to the hospital because he was like, I'm watching the game. Um, so that's the neglectful kind of narcissism, right? I'll take him after, right? When, when at this point, minutes, would it was an asthma attack, minutes would have mattered, right? So when, when we encounter that, sometimes people don't know, like, what, what is it going on? They just don't seem to care about anything, but I don't have fights with them. I'm not in conflict a lot. Um, well, that's because nines in general, as an Enneagram type, don't do conflict. They're fearful of it, including the narcissistic subtypes but they are so neglectful of them, not only themselves, but other people and other people's emotions and other people's needs um, that their comfort and stability and peace comes before anything. Um, and they're unapologetic about that. Um, and so that is the type of narcissism that people can often miss. Um, and then at the beginning of, uh, beginning of our, our interview, we talked about Cinderella um, 
And one of the narcissistic ex examples in that fable is the wicked step stepmother um, who sees herself as helping Cinderella, right? She's helping her. She's given her a home, even though it's not her actual daughter. And she should be grateful that she um, has taken her into her home and, and she should be happy to clean for her and her, her biological daughters, right? Well, the, that, that is an example of the entitled caregiver um, narcissistic variant and or type. And, and people can miss almost all of the type two um, narcissistic variants because part of being a two, and this is why I use the Enneagram as scaffolding here, you have to understand that the personality to begin with is um, the identity comes from being someone who helps others, who is supportive, who's kind, who's loving. And even the narcissistic iterations of that type believe that about themselves. So they may superficially appear to be helpful and supportive and loving and um, do things for people, but it's intermittent and it's based on what they think you need, not what you really need. And, or they may not really need, I mean, they may not really do anything for you, but the belief because of their pride is that I got, I do so much for other people and nobody recognizes it. Now all twos have that in them. Uh, but the narcissistic two, like the entitled caregiver may really, really overestimate what they do for others. And then therefore believe that they are entitled to not only treat people however they want, but get whatever they want because they and their minds have done so much for someone else. Um, and I've had many, many clients who had a parent, um, usually a mother, but a parent who was this uh, subtype who didn't ever really know what was wrong. Um, and, and, and because uh, often what comes with narcissism is a kind of jealousy, um, like the wicked stepmother, they were often jealous of their children because um, they just felt like they were getting some, all twos want attention. They were getting some kind of attention that that the two wanted or that the parent or whoever it is wanted and therefore would punish, like the stepmother did Cinderella, uh, punish them for nothing. But it was their own insecurity and needing to be superior. So that those are a few examples of... Uh, the subtypes that I think people miss. Um, and of course there's 27 of them in the book. So there's some other ones that I think people would not uh, recognize. For example, some of the type five um, ones that, because fives are more remote, uh, cerebral, they're not as grandiose and big and out there. Uh, people can miss those subtypes as well. And so I, I did take some time uh, to make sure I fleshed those out really, because I wanted people to be able to see it. What what is an intellectual narcissist? What is a communal narcissist? What is a self-righteous narcissist? What are some prominent examples from either the media or popular culture or history that people might recognize? What would you warn people in relationships with such individuals about what to be cautious about? what kinds of pain do these kinds of people suffer from? What kinds of wounds do they inflict on others? So the intellectual narcissist is, um, I'm glad you brought that up because it's one that that's one of those ones that people miss. Um, this is somebody who um, is, sees themselves as uh, the, the greatest thinker or the greatest mind of their time, 
right? It, it is, uh, people do not understand how smart I am. They can't possibly wrap their head around the things that I know. I'm smarter than most people. Um, and, and it may or may not be true. And so that's the important thing. So if it's true, you know, if someone is has a really high IQ and they're objectively more intelligent than most people, that's one thing. But, um, and so it depends on if it's a statement of fact. What, what makes it narcissistic is when the person believes that they are better than other people because they are smarter than other people. Um, or what is more often the case with the intellectual narcissist is they will inflate their intelligence um, they will inflate their intelligence in order to appear superior to other people. And therefore it justifies, and usually intellectual narcissism tends to run with a fair amount of vulnerable narcissism, uh, meaning that they will often see that they're not getting, um, the attention, praise, accolades, um, that they should be getting because they are so smart. And why, why don't people recognize this? And so, um, I have encountered more than a few of this particular, um, this is what I would call a kind of overarching category of narcissism. And then the 27 types are sort of nestled within that. And I, I like to, I, in each, after each different narcissistic subtype, I kind of say where they are on intellectual grandiose. Um, but I've encountered a lot of these, uh, the intellectual narcissist in academia, um, which should not be surprising to most people, because there can be this, you know, belief in being the smartest, um, and, uh, and the sort of arrogance that comes with that, the entitlement and the grandiosity, um, and the lack of empathy that can come with people who maybe don't get things that they don't get, or don't know what they don't know, or the deceitfulness around inflating that person, their their intelligence or uh, intellect to seem better than others. And I've seen that a lot as well. Uh, the intellectual narcissist can also be prone to stealing intellectual work, um, taking things as, you know, crediting, not crediting people or um, diminishing their you know, peers, because they're mad that they're getting recognition or accolades that they think they should be getting. That's very common. Um, and then remind me of the second half of your question. What were some of the other? I was going to ask you, what are the risks they pose to others? What are they suffering from on the inside? Can you can you say more about the dangers they pose to themselves, the dangers they pose to other people? Yeah, uh, th that's a really good question. So the dangers they pose, I mean, their impact is that they often can be quite diminishing. Um, they, they, they're they good at making people feel stupid. Um, they can be very uh, intellectually aggressive. Um, now, this particular subtype tends to be a little less concerned, at least superficially, with um, their image in terms of how they look or dress or something, which is another reason people can miss it. Um, but they are very much concerned with uh, how other people treat their intellectual ideas or their mind or their intelligence. And so the damage can, to others is is pretty um, noticeable in that they are they're um, they diminish people. they they make people feel small, they make people feel silly or stupid. Um, or they may steal other people's ideas and use them as their own. Um, they will, undermine people who are getting, uh, at, and this is true of many narcissists, but who are getting attention or accolades that they want. What's happening internally, and this is true of all narcissists, um, is that there is no stable sense of self. 
they are, they need the world and others around them to constantly feed them their self-image, their grandiose self-image so that they can be comfortable, so that they can feel like themselves. And, um, and so as you know, with the intellectual narcissist, which is incidentally more prone probably to depression um, than some of the other subtypes um, of narcissism, um, they can start to feel so disregarded and um, sort of cast out from society because they're not listening to them. And why aren't people taking, listening to their, you know, <clears throat> their, their intellectual brilliance, right? <clears throat> Excuse me. And uh, a good example of this would be Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber. Um, you know, he was admittedly very brilliant, but he felt like, um, you know, his, and there were some other things happening there, um, but he felt like, you know, people were not listening to him um, and his, he was, you know, providing the social commentary that was quite dark, but, you know, at the lower ends of the spectrum, this is somebody who could feel like, they have to make people listen to them um, and and maybe become violent in, in, in a way that usually supports an ideology or some sort of intellectual position. And that can be where they can get themselves into some trouble with other people, especially if there's psychopathy, like in the case of Ted Kaczynski um, involved. Now, he was also a five, so he did it from far away, right? <laughs> um, but... But yeah, that that's that's how they can be damaging to themselves and others, and it's that lack of self. It's a lack of self with all narcissists. There are some other classifications that come up in your book. Um, I'd be curious if you can share some insights regarding them. Um, what is a puritanical fuss budget? What are some common character traits? What are some warning signs about such individuals? What is a dark empath? How do they harm other people? How are they themselves harmed by other people? What is an intuitive romantic? What are their strengths and shortcomings in terms of character and personality? What is a moral inquisitor? Can you share some examples and provide some advice to people with these traits and in relationships with people with such traits? There are many that you share, but could we maybe uh, unpack these in the time that we have together? Yeah. Um, so both the moral inquisitor and the puritanical fuss budget are variations on uh, type one. Uh, and the one is, is just as a basic personality type is concerned with um, being morally and ethically above reproach. The one wants to be perfect and, and not necessarily externally perfect in terms of their image or appearance or their home, but internally perfect. And they want to do things correctly. They want to be, um, they, like I said, they want to be above reproach. They want to be ethical and moral and right and good. <clears throat> and so all ones um, are like that. So so when we add the these different variations, um, the 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 social one and the social subtype uh, i talk about this in the book and break all this down but the social subtype is concerned with the social world and so the the moral inquisitor um <clears throat> is concerned with ferreting out um 
evil or corruption or wrongdoing in the environment. They, they believe that in order to make the world as ethically pure and right as they are, and they fully believe that they themselves are above all moral and ethical um, wrongdoing and that they have the answers and they it's their job to correct others, they can be really focused on um, exposing other people's shortcomings and faults. And in the book, I use the example for the moral inquisitor of uh, the movie Doubt, um, which is uh, Meryl Streep was in. It's based on a play. Um, it's a great movie <clears throat> with Philip Seymour Hoffman. And she plays a, a really self-righteous um sort of zealous one um, and she's this moral inquisitor narcissistic subtype and she's so convinced of Philip Seymour Hoffman who plays a priest um, who is accused of an inappropriate relationship with a child at the school that they both work at. She has no proof uh, but her own conviction and of course the play is about doubt right and so it's left morally ambiguous but the way that she persecutes and goes after um Hoffman's character in the in the book is is indicative of this subtype. They are convinced of their righteousness, and the and the reason I use the term inquisitor is because um, it has that feeling. If you think about the Inquisition, you know, and and accusing people of being witches and of one's own conviction, and um, this is evil. This is how this subtype functions in the world, and and they can be um, very punitive. I I interviewed a college dean who was this subtype who enjoyed, and I talk about this in the book, um, who enjoyed expelling students uh, for cheating um, because he believed in the disgustingness of someone who would cheat and and um, talked about how he, if he could expel even more people, he would. Um, and so that's, that's, that's how that particular subtype kind of functions in the world. Um, but the, but it stems from a, a really deep place of feeling like they are, well, of course, on the deepest level, they feel that they are fundamentally wrong, right, and bad. But because they are narcissistic, that is never allowed into the psyche. What is allowed into the psyche is a sort of reaction formation um, into I am right and I am good. Now, all ones do that, but if they're narcissists, they can't even let in that they may have made a mistake or be wrong about something. And so that's what you see with uh, Streep's character in Doubt and in, in the Dean that I mentioned. The self-pres one um, is the, the puritanical fuss budget that you mentioned. And, and this takes the sort of focus of one being ethical and right and good um, and and more into the self-preservation arena. And I talk about what that means in the book, but um, it has to do with um, issues of the self, of the body, money, finances, food. Um, so this person is often quite um, rigid uh, in terms of diet, exercise. They may at least initially appear very kind of um, uh, sort of buttoned up, literally puritanical. They may avoid flash or... Um, anything that is too, you know, showy, but because the narcissism is present, they really do want to be um, the, uh, sort of a hypocritical quality develops where they will say they have a family, they will not allow television in the home and you can only read the Bible or whatever, um, a really kind of st strict 
sort of punitive way of of being and treating other people in their lives. You can't eat any sugar or whatever it may be. Um, but then they will also be very uh, permissive with themselves. So you get a do as I say, not as I do uh, quality with this uh, particular subtype. And they can be very judgmental about what people do. And, you know, to a lesser extent, you get somebody who's really rigid with their own diet and exercise regime um, and extremely judgmental and punitive and um, even hateful with people who aren't, don't, you know, say they're a vegetarian or vegan. And if you're not, they will be ju feel justified in being, um, you know, hateful or uh, demeaning people who don't ascribe to their ways of living their lives. Um, and and they, they, they often are very um, cheap um, when it comes to other people. Um, but then again, they may secretly indulge themselves. And then if they're called out, they will not address the hypocrisy because the narcissism will not allow them to see that. Um, uh, both the, the moralistic inquisitor and the puritanical fuss budget are both very punitive. And it's all focused around this sort of moralistic, idealistic ideal of how they believe things should be. It's just focused in different arenas. Um, and they feel justified in um, in exacting that on others and being punitive um, when people don't meet their standards. Um, and then I, I'd like to talk about the the you, you talk about the intuitive romantic and and that's another it's a, that's a personality type overall um, type four is the intuitive romantic and this is someone who believes that they are simultaneously motivated they are motivated to see themselves as being unique, um, but also sort of tragically flawed. There's a way in which the four or their intuitive romantic feels like they are um, both above the common crowd um, and they want to be seen as unique and special and rare. And they're often very emotional, intuitive. Um, this is a sort of tortured artist archetype, but then they also um, don't, really believe that they are unique and rare. And so that you get someone who cultivates an image of being different or unique, or um, there's they have this sort of palpable self-consciousness. If you think about public figures like, um, you know, Judy Garland or or Prince or um, Sylvia Plath, for example, who is who, who we could classify as this personality type. They're often very insightful and intuitive. Um, and emotionally perceptive, um, but there's a there's often a kind of held sense of their own tragic uh, identity. Um, now, of course, uh, anybody can be prone to depression, but this type in general um, is identified with being depression. Depression is a is runs across all nine types, uh, but the the four is identified as being someone who doesn't get what they want. Um, so when when narcissism enters the picture, it's very interesting because as as a default, um, this personality type is doesn't have the highest sort of sense of self esteem in a way because they they have this sort of compensatory, I'm rare and interesting and unique on the one hand, and then I'm flawed and tragic and inadequate on the other. Um, the the narcissistic variations of this sort of amplify all of that to the point where the the entitlement that almost all of people of this personality type have is inflated to such an extent that they will if they're narcissistic they will not feel they have to follow any kind of rules that other people have to follow 
they may feel justified in being quite hateful um, to people they're jealous of or envious of that they feel like have more than them. And they may um, believe that because of their specialness and their uniqueness, which is a feature of narcissism in general, um, that the world owes them something. And therefore, they may be a little less uh, ambitious to some extent than some of the other narcissistic variations. However, um, I do give the example in the book of uh, the movie The Devil Wears Prada, uh, which again, starring Meryl Streep. I didn't realize I used so many Meryl Streep movies. Um, and uh, and she plays the entitled outcast in that that movie as a narcissistic Variation. Of course, it's based on Anna Wintour, um, the editor-in-chief of Vogue. But but so elite, and there's this sort of snobby kind of, I, you know, in, in the film, Miranda Priestley is this powerful editor of this magazine, uh, Runway Magazine, and she's so disdainful of everyone who, including her assistant, um, who dresses in these you know, closed off the rack and she's made the ultimate outsider has made herself the ultimate insider. And that's, it's a way that that narcissism can show up where they can become so elite and snobby that they're almost untouchable. And so I think those are good ones that you brought up because I think, again, those are ones that people might not easily see. As we bring our dialogue to a close today, what are you working on now as a subsequent project? What are you working on next as a current project? Can you clarify? Yeah. Um, so I am. Uh, I, I'm. I have a couple of ideas um, that I'm sort of rolling around right now. One is a more of a memoir kind of personal uh, account of my experience with uh, narcissistic abuse and how these themes that I've talked about in this book that you know is more kind of instructive. Um, how they've played out in my own life. So that's one. Um, project that I'm working on. I'm in very early stages with that. Um, and then also I would, I have been in talks to just to, to write about uh, more how to work and live and be in relationship with these types of narcissism um, and strategies. You know, one of the things that got um, cut out of the final book because of time and length was different strategies for a, if you are one of these subtypes, how you can, um, maybe some behavioral strategies that you can employ and then be, I know at the end of each subtype, I give uh, a few points for how to work with these uh, subtypes of narcissism, but I'd like to expand upon that and give a much more complete um, sort of, uh, I don't want to say a manual, but a, a, a resource that people can use to think about how to be in relationship with these people because they're not going anywhere. These, I mean, these narcissistic subtypes exist um, and they're not, you know, we're not going to cure it or change it, but what we can do is learn how to manage um, living with and being with them. So, so that those are, those are a couple of the things I have uh, in the works that we'll see which one wins out in the end, but, but ultimately I hope to do, do all of those things at some point. So I wish you the best of luck. This book is incredible. And I thought it was such a fascinating erudite study. And I can hardly recommend it enough to our listeners and the community of readers out there. Well, thank you very much, Ari. I really appreciate that. And it was good talking to you as well. Thank you. Thank you for your eloquence. And thank you for everything that you shared with us about your wisdom and expertise in the course of this conversation. 
Of course. As we bring our dialogue to a close, I'm Ari Barbalat on the New Books Network podcast. Today, I've been in conversation with Dr. Sterling Mosley. He is Assistant Professor at the University of Oklahoma in the Department of Human Relations. We have been discussing his new book, The Narcissist in You and in Everyone Else, Recognizing the 27 Types of Narcissism, published in New York by Roman and Littlefield, 2023. Thank you.